Welcome to the AMR Studio, a podcast dedicated to the multidisciplinary research on antimicrobial resistance, hosted by the Uppsala Antibiotic Center. Hi, I am Eva Garmendia. And I'm Jenny Jagman. And I'm Po Ching Tang. Welcome once more to the AMR Studio. Today we are featuring an interview with Klaas Kirchhelle from the Oxford Martin School hosted at Oxford University. And he's a historian and he's going to talk to us a little bit about his path to AMR, his experiences working with the public on AMR, and his views on what history actually can bring to the medical field, in a sense. Jenny conducted this interview actually quite recently. I think this is the most closer from interview to airing that we almost had since the AMR studio started. And just a heads up, today episode is going to be a little bit shorter, so just hang with us because we have something new for you in the end of the episode. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome, Dr. Klaus Kirchhelle. Would you mind introducing yourself to our listeners? Yes, hi. So um, I'm a researcher based at the Oxford Martin School at the moment, where I'm part of the program for collective responsibility for infectious diseases. And as part of this program, I work together with many other disciplines, including the medical sciences and medical humanities, on global challenges. And in our case, we focus on antimicrobial resistance, so AMR. We also focus on malaria, childhood vaccination refu- uh, refusal, and influenza. Okay. Um, how did you get into this field from your background? So by classical training, I'm I'm a pure historian, if there's anything like that. So I started out actually studying medieval history and ancient history, and uh, by chance got uh, a student research assistant job in environmental history in Munich at the time at the Rachel Carson Center, and became really interested in how societies interact with their environments, but also shaped in relationship to their environment. And uh, I was then fortunate enough to be allowed to study in the US for a year at the University of Chicago, where I studied social sciences. And when I came back, I wanted to combine my interest in history with something that has uh, political and social significance Mm -hmm. and also has this environmental focus. So antibiotics with the specific focus on non-human antibiotic use were a kind of perfect focus for my research interests. Yeah, it's it's really like, I mean, a crossing between a lot of different topics there. I mean, especially your jump from medieval history, that feels like a really big jump, but I guess... It feels quite distant now. (laughs) Yeah, coming from the environmental side, then it makes a lot more sense and how humans have impacted the environment and it's something we've talked about before in the podcast the whole one health aspect of um, how everything kind of coincides in the same thing we're not separated so the interest in AMR specifically came from like the opportunity or that you wanted to do something that was more uh, applicable to society today I think initially it actually arose as a research topic in which I was just naturally interested yeah um, I think studying history makes you appreciate long-term trends and long-term interactions between different factors and with antibiotics and the rising interest in antibiotics that was occurring right when I was starting my PhD mm-hmm. in 2012 um, there was this kind of natural synergy of a topic that had relevance but was also just of, of pure research interest to me because it tied in how humans produce their food, how their environment changes, how yeah. humans work and react to risk, how they predict the future, how they structure their stewardship regimes. And also the the fact that AMR is not a new topic. No. Uh, we've known about drug fastness since the 1910s. Mm-hmm. So it's now over a century old, the observation. And uh, both, you know, the, the fact that societies have failed to regulate efficiently against the AMR and the fact that we've had so many stewardship regimes along the line makes this topic extremely intriguing, I think, to any historian. Yeah. So you 
the way you describe what you're working with now, you work with a lot of people with different backgrounds and different insights. How does it feel to work with all these different backgrounds with your history background, working with maybe people from social sciences from a different aspect? How does this work? Often enough, you get asked whether you've got a philosophy for interdisciplinary research, you know, how it works with the interaction. Um, in my experience, it's been a quite undogmatic process of simply talking to each other and noticing that there are certain fields of interest that you have in common, despite disagreeing on many other things. Yeah. So in the case of my research at the Martin School, over the past couple of years, I've had profoundly fruitful collaborations with colleagues in fields that um, address the kind of biosocial components of disease on an equal footing. Mm -hmm. So for example, with some colleagues, I've worked on the history of typhoid and the AMR. I've looked at how societies have structured their forms of antibiotic use, how warnings were interpreted, how mm -hmm. um, stewardship regimes were built around it. And those were really fruitful interactions because I didn't know a lot about the microbiology. I mean, I had basic literacy, yeah. um, but I could rely on close collaborations with my colleagues to supply that information and I could supply the information in the social and historical context that mm -hmm. uh, wasn't a natural um, focus of their discipline. So it's been, I'd say, a kind of mutual coming to terms with each other's expertise and then coming to a point where you are no longer just asking questions by yourself, but you're starting to formulate new questions in conjunction with the other discipline. Mm -hmm. So you, you feel like it, this kind of is based on mutual interest, it sounds like you have a interest in the same topic, but maybe does it take time to come to respect the other person's opinions or does it ever feel like there's an imbalance between, if you say you work with somebody with more of a microbiology background, if there's an imbalance between the respect for the different fields or does it feel like this is... I think it takes time and I think one of the biggest factors that has led to the success of the Martin School project has been that we had enough time and resources to build trust yeah. over the years. Um, I think the different academic literacies of the disciplines are such that in some cases questions that you tend to ask don't really make sense to the other scientists, for example, no. across, the, across the table. And that the qualitative approach that I usually apply to historical data might be quite different from mm -hmm. the quantitative evaluation that you get in the natural sciences. So learning how to predict how the other person might interpret what you're saying and also being able to appreciate the data that you're getting back, which might not be your natural literacy yeah. for making sense of the world, that takes time. And we had that time and we had that luxury. And in Oxford, we also had the physical space to just continuously come together, yeah. that that worked out. Just um, this interaction, that there is an interaction. There is an interaction. It was an interaction that wasn't continuously reviewed either. So we, we, no. we were able to, I think, you know, bash our heads against each other, for, yeah. for want of a better word, for a time. And mm -hmm. after a while we realized that we seemed to be heading in a clearly definable direction. And that was when things got really interesting. So that's, I think, yeah, trust, yeah. trust, and time. It sounds like also kind of a mutual language or like a, a respect of how the other person communicates. Absolutely. I mean, it, it sounds like it's very different. The kinds of questions you get, the kind of answers you get, the vocabulary maybe differs, the perspective differs. I think at the end of the day, you start respecting your counterpart as a researcher and you I mean clearly you respect them from the start but you gain an appreciation for the depth of knowledge yeah. that they have and they start gaining that respect for you too and after that point you start losing these disciplinary barriers and these um, you know safeguards that you mm -hmm. put in place initially and you start just becoming genuinely interested in the questions the other person is answering or asking and you start answering questions together yeah um what do you think is missing from AMR research from your point of view? So you have this very diverse interaction in your work right now, but 
do you feel like there's a part that's still missing, something that society isn't maybe doing or missing from the research? I think the last two or three years in the global research scene have you know, led to a profound realization that AMR is a biosocial problem. Yeah. I think that for lots of decades prior to the you know, late 2010s, um, there was an expectation that there was either a technical fix for AMR in the form mm-hmm. of new antibiotics or that um, better surveillance, better data gathering at the natural sciences level would probably solve problems. Yeah. Um, I think what people are starting to realize is that communicating the risks of AMR and creating effective stewardship regimes depends on very good knowledge of the social context and historical context you're dealing with. Mm-hmm. And with the advent of a lot of anthropological research on usage patterns, on yeah. conceptions of risk, and more historical research on how these conceptions evolve, how they are tied into other more deep-rooted perceptions of risk has had a profound impact on how um, we are now talking about stewardship at the international level where we're no longer simply taking for granted this 1950s narrative of rational antibiotic use as something that is intuitively understandable to people across the world in different disciplines. More understanding for everybody, I mean, everybody's different context and the complexity of the problem. Yes, and also that that the rationality is always linked to a context. Your risk is not a natural risk for somebody else. Yeah. It makes no sense for somebody who is not in a high-income country to be afraid of the same AMR patterns that we are afraid of in a kind of hospital context yeah. in Sweden, for example. Exactly. And that realization is something that needs a long time to get translated into decision-making levels. And I think we are realizing this now because of 80 years of failure mm-hmm. of regulation, of 80 years of saying follow the dosage, follow the treatment regime, and not appreciating that there are absolutely valid rationales for not doing so yeah. in different places. And that only by appreciating these rationalities and working through the infrastructures that are in place, it is only through this mechanism that we can develop more effective stewardship in the long term. Oh, absolutely. Uh, so this is something that I actually read up on you beforehand, but I've heard, seen that you have some experience working with communication especially to the public in different ways. Uh, I saw that you were curator of a museum exhibition, among other things, and an advisor on a BBC radio special. And I wanted to ask you about your experience with this sort of public outreach. Um, so you have a lot of experience communicating with researchers from different fields, but do you feel, how, how do you see this challenge of communicating outwards to people that maybe don't have an interest in AMR, don't have this interest ingrained in them? How do you reach out to them? How do you interest them? I think communicating about AMR is is quite difficult because it's such an abstract topic. Um, yeah. It's not the actual infection you're dealing with, it's the resistance factor. It's, mm-hmm. it's the ability of a specific pathogen or specific microbe to resist an antibiotic. And there are so many misconceptions about what antibiotic resistance is about there that it, it is quite a challenge to find the right level of communication. But in other ways, I think it's actually quite related to how I communicate history to colleagues from the natural sciences, where I also have to stop taking specific modes of thinking for granted and really get to know my audience before I start messaging. So the antibiotics exhibitions I did in Oxford, they were linked to the upcoming 75-year anniversary of the first clinical trials Mm -hmm. of penicillin, uh, which took place in Oxford. 
and I think also, uh, I should say, Oxford's place in the history of penicillin development. I think Oxford has always suffered a bit from the reputation of Alexander Fleming, uh, the <laughs> penicillin discoverer who actually did not develop penicillin. I always have to say this at this point. And it was really our attempt to put the story of the Oxford team that was working under remarkable circumstances during mm-hmm. the Second World War to first isolate penicillin, discover its molecular structure, yeah. uh, and then also uh, do the first clinical trials and then upscale it in the US. Uh, that was really our motive of doing this exhibition initially. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then it became much more interesting because we were also thinking, so how do we communicate AMR to the public? And um, we realized also working with lots of the public engagement studies that were being done at the time that there was no straightforward way of doing this. So no. we started realizing that it was important to work with what-if scenarios. Yeah. Uh, so what if there was a world in which our antibodies workhorses no longer work and at that point it became quite interesting because as an historian you can draw on lots of scenarios in which Mm -hmm. antibiotics haven't worked in the past or you know in which initial resistance warnings came up and so those were important insights that we could use in terms of structuring the exhibition and with the radio play um, that was a lot of fun Uh, the the basic (laughs) scenario was one um, where in Oxford, uh, a new antibiotic had been developed called panicillin uh, in a world <laughs> of pan resistance. And the fundamental question of how you reconcile the fact that you have an effective treatment, but not everybody can get that effective treatment because it has to mm-hmm. be rationed in order to preserve its efficacy. So the fundamental antibiotic dilemma. And I think if you break antibiotic resistance down to these scenarios and to these really deep philosophical concepts of who should get what and who should have access, at that point, AMR becomes very communicable to the public yeah. as an issue of collective responsibility. And you kind of describe two, I mean, maybe not different, but two, uh, I'd call them a little bit different ways of communicating a problem like AMR, you talk about uh, the historical aspects you can bring in of thinking of a future without antibiotics, you can bring in the history of there was a time without antibiotics and what happened. But also this kind of storytelling with the radio episode, it sounds like it was a a hypothetical future where uh, many pan-resistant infections exist and there's this new antibiotic. And how do you feel about this method of storytelling as a way of communication that you really kind of get the audience interested and motivated into a story and not just... uh, it's different from if you try to like lecture somebody about it or like this just fact based like straight up these are the facts about AMR and whatnot. Yeah I think I think historians have a natural advantage in that regard because you know here I'm shamelessly waving the flag of my own discipline but it's um, (laughs) uh, in German the word Geschichte of story is -hmm. the same as the word Geschichte for history. Okay. Historians are by trade empirical storytellers. Mm -hmm. Um, We provide you with qualitative narratives about our past. They are empirically founded. They are vetted. They are scientific in that way. They're clearly not hypothesis-driven to the same extent, right? But at the end of the day, our mode of communication is always a story. It always has a beginning. It has an end. Usually there are some kind of like high points, tragedies, triumphs, etc. And so I think our discipline, our mode of communication is quite suited to also working with, let's say, storytellers, Mm -hmm. professional storytellers, science communication in that way too. Um, It is the ability, I think, to communicate across disciplines, across publics, etc., that is the sign of of a good historian. I think you have to know your audience, you have to know how you write. We also write books, right? We don't just write papers. Um, So I think in a way, being an historian allows you to appreciate the power of story craft. And as mm-hmm. a consequence, it's also fun to yeah. work with, with professional storytellers. But I think it really does give you an advantage with this um, 
communicating to the public. I mean, a lot of people, those of us that host this podcast are have a natural science background, and we sometimes face this challenge of how do we explain this in a way, how do we communicate this in a way, and this is something that we're not that experienced in. So it's really interesting to hear from somebody that really has this kind of more, I wouldn't say useful, but yeah, useful <laughs> background in how to tell stories, how to communicate. And it does sound like it's a very unique setting where it works really well to tell these stories. I mean, perhaps one thing to add in this context is also humans are just storytelling machines, right? Yeah. We make sense of our present by telling ourselves a story about our past. Mm -hmm. There are biases in there. I can never leave my position as the present observer, even yeah. when I'm telling you about the past. But in a way, we constantly do that. And we also tell ourselves stories about our past in order to make predictions about the future. Mm -hmm. And so, again, being an historian allows you to do that quite well, I think. Yeah. Um, at least it seems easy for me to tell you a story about our common past, yeah. even though it is clearly biased from my own perspective. Um, so again, I think that is a natural advantage that one has when one's able to travel in time both mm -hmm. ways in your discipline. Yeah. So there is also the thought that in things such as climate change and AMR, when we're discussing these things, that being a little bit too apocalyptic might be a negative. Well, we're, I mean, we're obviously talking about serious problems and we need to be prepared for serious consequences. Do you feel, do you agree to this, that maybe we should avoid being very negative with very dark headlines when we talk about the post-antibiotic era, the um, antibiotic apocalypse and these sorts of things? Do you think that there's a negative side to using this kind of dark language or dark conceptions? Or do you think that it's useful to show the potential future that might be might be apocalyptic in a way? That's a difficult question because on the one hand side, the future is dark for people who will depend on antibiotics that no longer work. Yeah. People will die. And even if people don't die, having a prolonged hospital stay, losing a limb, mm -hmm. all of these things may well become reality again if we have no new antibiotics in the pipeline, if we yeah. don't improve our stewardship regimes, etc. And even worse, these things will happen to people who are already poor and who will already suffer the worst effects of climate change too in the global south. So in yeah. a way, it's a perfect storm that is brewing. And I think we would we, we do well to warn the public about the fact that AMR is as big a risk mm -hmm. because so much of our food production and healthcare infrastructures depend on functioning antibiotics. But similar to climate change, and here I come to storytelling again, mm -hmm. um, the apocalypse, any Hollywood movie, you, you read about it, the apocalypse happens and then there's either a moment of redemption or a moment of final fall, but it happens like that, yeah. snap, immediately. The movie never tells you about the 30 to 40 to 50 to 60 years of living in a world without antibiotics that are functioning as effectively as they used to or living yeah. in a world with a profoundly changed climate. Um, so in a way, the apocalyptic genre is both necessary, I think, to raise awareness for the very real, very harsh realities that are looming around the corner, mm -hmm. But on the other hand, there's a huge danger of overplaying the apocalypse because what if we all warn the apocalypse is happening and it doesn't happen, right? You know, yeah. what, what, what if we don't fall off a sharp cliff, but we are, we're kind of going down a gradient? Yeah, this disaster That's, fatigue thing that maybe people don't, if, they, if it's not a severe disaster as it's portrayed, then they think, oh, well, it's It's the rule of drama, happening. right? You know, yeah. it's, it's, you, you, you never have a kind of slow... Yeah very gradual fall into decline. That's that's boring. That's also not yeah. what, what you can sell to media representatives, for And it's example. easy not to notice and when things are declining. The, the other thing I should mention is this genre has been overused, too. Yeah. We're not the first people who are saying there's an antibiotic apocalypse around the corner. The first warnings we get 
in the 1950s with the first pandemic of resistant organisms, Staphylococcus 8081, when people are explicitly warning about return to the pre-antibiotic era if people don't use antibiotics responsible. Then they get a new generation of antibiotics and suddenly the apocalypse is yeah. off. The next time this happens is in the 1960s. Uh, uh, the New York Times publishes warnings to Spaceship Earth uh, as a result of antibiotic resistance. The next time the apocalypse happens is in the late 1970s, early 1980s, coinciding with the HIV-AIDS crisis, which mm -hmm. is emerging. The next time in the early 1990s. Uh, so you, you get the pattern, right? Yeah. There is fatigue that happens, and I think an apocalypse leads to a desire for short-term universal fixes. And those won't emerge in the case of AMR. No. Stewardship is safeguarding efficacy for as long as possible, but knowing that eventually you will get resistance development. Yeah, um, and that, that's a very different some, message. There is no the heroism in that yeah. sense. So um, we have to warn, mm -hmm. but only relying on the apocalypse will lead to wrong regulatory responses because yeah. there is no quick fix. Yeah, no, that's a really good way of putting it, I think. So I think I'd like to start wrapping up, but I wanted to ask you a last question that we like to ask everybody that comes to the podcast, uh, especially from your background in history, then thinking from that direction. Is there anything that you find that's often misunderstood about your field? I think it's always an initial sell to say I'm an historian to a natural scientist audience and take <laughs> me seriously. Because I think people have two conceptions of history that are quite competing. Mm -hmm. One is, oh, it's going to be an amusing anecdote according to you know, horrible histories or something like that. Yeah. And the other thing is that people often you know, expect profound lessons from history, universal lessons that hold true across time and space. And I think history is both more than an amusing anecdote and less than clear lessons. What historians can offer you is an appreciation of the long-term structures of the deeply embedded path dependencies that our regulatory systems, our usage patterns are following, mm -hmm. and a level of insight into opportunities that might have been missed and alternatives that were possible. And that is something, I think, especially in the long-term uh, perspective, that we can uniquely offer yeah. to decision makers and to natural scientists alike who might be interested in sampling biases, who might be interested in how alternative antibiotic-free futures could look like. Um, mm -hmm. So that is something where historians as storytellers, but also empirical builders of the past, so to speak, um, can uniquely offer other disciplines. Uh, so, but it's, it's a self. I think yeah. people don't have that conception of us. You maybe have to give this initial As a discipline that can answer questions for science, yeah. not just provide the kind of introduction or background information to it. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Uh, with that, would you like to add anything or is there anything you've been working on that you'd like to mention to the audience? Um, I mean, shamelessly, I could plug that a book of mine is forthcoming with Rutgers University Press in early 2020, Pyrrhic Progress, um, the History of Antibiotics in British and American Agriculture. Um, and uh, that's hopefully going to provide you with this grand narrative of antibiotics, specifically in non-human use yeah. since the 1930s. Absolutely. We'll have to keep an eye out for that one. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah. Welcome back. Uh, Poe and Eva, what did you think about this interview with Dr. Kihala? Well, I guess uh, maybe we can ask Poe since I, I was kind of there. Like, for Poe, probably listening to this interview was like a new 
Yeah. All new. <laughs> yeah, it was it was really all new. I'm so sad that I had to miss uh, his his seminar and his talk because it was a really really interesting perspective. He is a historian, right? And mm. so he's, it, a, he's it, a pure historian, he's really a pure from, historian. from education. But, but he's ended up in this really interesting field and very very good at it. Yeah, yeah he he didn't really talk that much about uh, the work that he presented when he was here giving the seminar. Mm. He gave an overview of the use of antibiotics in food production, mm. which is something that we have not really talked that much here at the AMR studio yet. I yeah. hope that someday we will interview someone that really like works uh, looking into this. But he presented that at the seminar and he is publishing a book on that topic mm-hmm. as well. He's published several papers already on the topic. Yes. If anybody wants to look into it, I mean, there's lots of information out there from him. Mm. But Yeah, but it was a really interesting perspective, I think, that he brought because of his background. Yeah. And he really had a lot of experience communicating with different people, different audiences. And he talked about this, like how do you change your narrative to your different audiences and I thought it was really interesting to talk to somebody that both specializes in communicating with researchers because that's very different and has a lot of experience communicating with general public mm. because that's actually something we haven't had that much of lately no yeah, we, I think, we I think he mentioned how being a historian is kind of yeah. like his craftsmanship right that the storytelling yeah the historians communicating is yeah. really essential part of his job so mm-hmm. he is really good at shifting how you talk to the different audiences as well which is I think a very important skill that we we are lacking in the field of AMR because like you said uh, fundamental to AMR is also the narrative of AMR mm-hmm. how we communicate this issue so that everybody absorbs it and understands it yeah this, this is something that the field I think in a whole is, is lacking and we're actively developing this area mm-hmm. right so it, it is going to become one of the key important areas of the whole AMR situation probably in the coming yeah I, I think like how he mentioned that over the past decade or 15 years, the field has realized the importance of the social sciences Mm -hmm. to it and that social sciences have a lot to give and to participate in looking for solutions. I think the next step will be the communication part as well, right? So it's like you're building up to create various solutions and a sustainable system of solutions and practices in place. Mm -hmm. And I think it was first the biology and the technical part of it, then you realize you need the social sciences to it, and then you bring in that communication is such an essential part because it's kind of translating you know the technical the sciencey part yeah. into the human behavior the cultural part and how do you put all those things together yeah he was talking about how originally it was kind of thought that a new antibiotic will solve the problem and historically that has happened I mean he brought up some examples there was uh, some case of resistance back in the 50s and then a new antibiotic came around problem solved temporarily we maybe didn't realize how temporarily at the time but that th- we used to think of this as like a science will solve the problem, new antibiotic, problem solved. And then we moved maybe towards stewardship will solve the problem, taking care of the antibiotics that we have. And you mentioned this now that stewardship is not preserving the antibiotic indefinitely. It is preserving it for as long as we can before it'll be lost eventually. Mm. And I think here is a moment where we maybe can take a pause and discuss a little bit what stewardship is. Because even us here when we were talking about (laughs) the interview aftermath, we were like, no, no, but wait, stewardship. What What is is stewardship? stewardship? (laughs) Um, Mm. What does it include or doesn't include has the stewardship concept has changed since Mm -hmm. the antibiotic resistant problem has evolved or not so when we take a look at the dictionary definition of stewardship stewardship is the job of supervising or taking care of something such as an organization or a property so in this case the property would be the antibiotics right then when you look a little bit further into the definition of stewardship then we get that it's an ethical
topic that embodies the responsible planning and management of resources. In this case, you know, the antibiotics are the resource. Yeah. So when, when I started in, in this field or when I was getting ac- acquainted with antibiotics and antibiotic resistance, I kind of saw that stewardship was everything that had to do with antibiotic use. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, when you are in the hospital and you decide what are the guidelines to give out the antibiotic, when are you supposed to give them and where you are not supposed to give them, and which antibiotic, which antibiotic yeah. you use, uh, for how long you use it, all those type of things. But then I got to know that is the definition of how the the different parts of the system utilizes stewardship is more about the physicalities of the antibiotics, you know, from the very beginning when you start making them to yeah. how you dispose of them to how you take care of them or the resources you have at the hospital. Mm-hmm. So it's a little bit different than what I had in my picture in my mind. Yeah, the fact that like the manufacturing process is included, it kind of that's something I think I only realized recently as well that it really that's part of the stewardship is mm. taking care of like the whole process chain from mm-hmm. production to disposal and in between there is who gets it where and when and why. Mm. And it's a very it's a very difficult problem to kind of all compact into one thing. There's so many different sides and it's very international. A lot of mm. antibiotics are produced in a different country than where they are sold. Mm-hmm. And with different regulation systems. Every country has different systems on regulation and how they're disposed of. Some people out of, you know, habit just throw all their medications into the toilet and flush it and that's a terrible solution for antibiotics. It is very dynamic, isn't it? I think the idea of stewardship from where it was first mentioned yeah. and is still being mentioned now is very dynamic mm-hmm. because of the situation is being very dynamic. Yeah. So it is very interesting how the the use of stewardship, the idea of stewardship is kind of evolving evolving as mm-hmm. things are also evolving in a way in Neymar. Yeah. yeah, because there's also not so, we were saying, there is no a regulatory body that looks into, into stewardship, right? Like stewardship yeah. has largely been voluntary mm-hmm. and more like a self-regulation that, yeah, there is a, a will to preserve this, but there is no, like a certain guidelines in yeah. place and that is enforced in any way and there is no regulatory body that would actually overlook mm-hmm. all yeah. this. So, so this idea of that, yeah, that regulatory yeah. body that class has is an interesting idea I think yeah. and it might be needed because historically we, we understand that FDA uh, kind of existed or came into form because of the need of some regulatory body yeah because um, mistakes were found along because the way mistakes were found along the way and we're already kind of at that place where we see there's a need yeah and yeah like it's for example very difficult to regulate this yeah uh, I, when I was in you know like what you were saying the different steps from making the, the product yeah. to be kept becoming a process. process so it has to be safeguarded in a way like you know there is this instance where there is a, a factory in China mm-hmm. it was that burned down mm-hmm. and it turned out that that factory was the only solely factory providing the active pharmaceutical ingredient to a very needed antibiotic mm-hmm. for everyone around the world that factory broke down couldn't work that mm-hmm. antibiotic cannot be made anymore and that is very risky it's yeah. a very risky thing but there is so many levels that are very difficult yeah. to really regulate and that's something that's come up at seminars here at the UAC uh, pharmacists talking about how we can have a plan that in this case this is the antibiotic that you should prescribe what happens when that antibiotic is not available at that pharmacy for that patient at that time ideally mm. then you have to pick a I mean an antibiotic that is not appropriate or not as appropriate and might contribute to a resistance in a totally different way rather than use the ideal first line antibiotic and this 
this is a problem that's come up in Sweden quite a bit because we have a pretty strict regulation on pharmacies. And often one of the things that runs out of pharmacies is antibiotics. Yes, and shortages. Yeah. It's really an ethical challenge, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's, and it's, it's so multi, multi-layered. Mm. There's so many different parts of the Especially when, when you put into place that uh, different countries have different policies. Yeah. What are the connections between the different countries? Yeah. So it is, and we've also we've talked about international treaties before as a solution. We talked about that in our, one of our first interviews with uh, Dr. Hoffman, and we've talked about national action plans on different levels. But there's still a step missing. I mean, there aren't any internet really big international treaties yet. There's not really anything that can really enforce regulation and how much should regulation be enforced and how much should other countries go in and steer what a third country does, for example. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a very complex problem. But uh, definitely something worth yeah. having in mind and. Talking about it. This was quite a rabbit hole when we started thinking about stewardship. What <laughs> is <a> stewardship? <laughs> yeah. I think it's interesting to bring up something that uh, Dr. Kishela actually posted on Twitter the other day. Oh, yeah. Uh, he wrote an article on a history of phages in, uh, I think it was the, of the Weim- in the Weimar Republic time in Germany. And pu- it was published yesterday, which was World Phage Day. day I because this is World Phage Week. Yes. So We've- phages, we mentioned before what yeah. phages are which are viruses that uh, infect bacteria. Mm-hmm. And yeah, his very recent published article is The Forgotten Typers, The Rise and Fall of Weimar Bacteriophage Typing from 1921 useful antibiotics yeah. very uh, on point but now it's one of these ideas that could be a possible alternative treatment to mm-hmm. infectious diseases could be phage therapy so in his paper he's just looking back uh, at the history of bacteriophage typing and yeah. bacteriophage typing is basically studying what bacteriophage infects which bacteria and we can leave a link to that article as well if anybody wants to look into it yeah definitely i'm sure it's going to to be a, a nice read yeah <laughs> Like Eva said, this is a shorter episode today. We're not going to have a separate news section. This interview that we did today kind of ties into the reason why we're going to have a special episode released for World Antibiotic Awareness Week about communication of AMR. We're going to talk to several different people at different levels and try to look into what are different aspects of how you communicate AMR itself. That's one of the things we do, and we want to hear about how other people do it, maybe more for a living than we do. Yeah, we want to to learn the different strategies and how different audiences need different information. Mm-hmm. and how do they work with that so very exciting special episode coming yeah. in two weeks time for you um, interviewing pretty interesting people as well yeah we think so uh, but instead of a new section we have a short run through of a paper that came out recently Ava can you tell us about this paper yeah so this is actually the review of progress on antimicrobial resistance as we have mentioned before back in 2014 the UK Prime Minister commissioned a review of AMR to Lord Jim O'Neill, like you probably have heard about it and we have talked about it, this mighty O'Neill report. Yeah. Uh, it was commissioned in 2015, uh, 2014. The final report came out in 2016, but a lot of the sub-reports were actually being released from 2014 to 2016. And the final report basically came out to the to the conclusion that there was going to be a huge death toll in the future, mm-hmm. a, a huge toll in the global economy as well. And they were putting forward 10 recommendations, uh, 10 areas where 
a, where a lot of work could be done to reduce this possible future burden uh, on, on our society. Now, in October 2019, Charles Cliff has published a research paper looking into how much has been done about these 10 recommendations, this AMR. It is not very short review. <laughs> uh, it has a very beautiful foreword by himself, Jim O'Neill. And basically, what they are looking into is to see of the 10 recommendations, which ones have more work already been done into them, which ones require more work, and maybe analyzing as well why those ones that not so much has been done into why is it happening and what could be needed. So the main overall uh, summary of this is that there has been very little progress on the review's central and more expensive recommendations. For example, transforming research and development incentives for antibiotics, vaccines and diagnostics. And they argue that this is basically because it's the part where more money is needed. And there hasn't really been a consensus of where the money should come from, who is going to take care of this. So it's a little bit like slower. They also say that there's been a lot of significant advances in reducing antibiotic use in agriculture, which is a huge thing, because that was one of the parts where the most amount of antibiotics were used and in ways that were not needed at all, especially for, you know, for growth promotion. Uh, for growth promotion. Yeah. They are also saying that there has been a lot of inve- investment in raising awareness, mm-hmm. but still we don't know how effective that awareness has been to change behaviors related to antibiotics, yeah. which is something we mentioned. Talked about here that quite before, a lot. Yeah. How do you actually m- measure, measure the impact of these yeah. awareness campaigns and these communication and how are you uh, sure strategies? That the outcome is right, that people change their behavior in the right way mm-hmm. or the most effective way. What mm-hmm. is the most effective way? Mm-hmm. They also mention how it's essential to invest in water, sanitation, and housing because we've talked a little bit before that, of course, antibiotic use is a main is one of the drivers of resistance. Mm-hmm. But the more and more we analyze the distributions of AMR around the world, we realize that how the health system works, how well the hygiene, sanitation, yeah, and water, basic infrastructure works, that has to provide much more to the yeah. uneven distribution of AMR mm-hmm. around the world. So a lot of emphasis should be put on that. And I and think to add to that layer is where to get money for that yeah. as well, right? How, how, do, they, how, how do you, how do you that? fund that type of yeah. Yeah, infrastructure development? And overall, they just say that any emerging innovation that comes out now for this global management of AMR actually needs to be put into action yeah. and not just talking about it and talking about it and yeah this is a good idea yeah we should do this but we should actually make it happen yeah basically put words of course, into actions. Uh, yeah put yeah. words into actions that's basically the the yeah. the end of the <laughs> of the report mm-hmm. so we're going to leave the link to it because this is of course uh, published and open and mm-hmm. anybody can take a look at it Great. and i would say that it's also really good if to get the acquaintance with the work that needs to be done and has been done. So it's a very good review of why the commencements were needed, what work has been done on them, what is a little bit needed. And it is uh, interesting for sure. And as a last thing, I wanted to mention that when you hear scientists talking about the O'Neill report and... Especially natural scientists. Especially natural scientists, because they often talk about how the numbers of this burden that they put forward might or might not have been accurate enough. Mm -hmm. Uh, Antimicrobial also includes potential aid 
HIV, tuberculosis, yeah. death all. But because they said that more than 10 million people a year could die of AMR-related infections and more than 100 trillion US dollars of toll in the global economy, mm-hmm. those are huge numbers. And a lot of people kind of argue, is this really true? Where does the numbers come from? Yeah. But we have to say that this was actually one of the things that put this AMR agenda forward and made a lot of people to be interested about this. And it's very interesting at the beginning of this research paper that they said that if you Google search for, quote, 10 million deaths globally, 2050 drug resistance, end quote unquote, on 30th of September 2019, you will get 5.92 million results, which kind of gives you a number. (laughs) It gives you an overview of how much movement this statement has brought to to work in general. And this, you have to have in mind, it came out in 2015, I think is when the first numbers started to come out. So this is four years only, Mm -hmm. and there is a lot that has been at least mentioning this burden and this potential yeah. effect which you can argue the numbers might not come true we hope they don't and come of true of course we hope they don't come but true but the idea that that it helped yeah. making this more visible it should be acknowledged yeah and I think especially that they compared it to the number of deaths from cancer yeah that I of mean, course nobody wants there to be many deaths from cancer either but it's important to scale this I always think about that because by 2050 how are the predictions of how many people are going to have cancer because cancer is related to how old our societies are And we are becoming older societies, which of course is going to have a higher rate of cancer, Mm -hmm. which hopefully the treatments will get better. So the death toll will be less. But it feels very hard to predict also what's going to happen in the field of cancer. I mean, that's a completely different aspect that's very important to do research on. But I mean, this is a whole nother thing. (laughs) But I just thought it was worth mentioning because you, some of you at home might actually hear these kind of criticisms. And we are not saying that it's true or not true. We're just saying these numbers tell you how much she's been talked about at least it's at least hyped up the conversation yeah I think it'll be very interesting once we see it in Blockbuster (laughs) because (laughs) it is is, kind of like that isn't it Um, climate change has also had this momentum there was reports um, which kind of drove the international Mm -hmm. agenda which there is a Swedish Swedish scientist that said the only thing AMR needs is that a very famous person just dies of a resistant infection yeah we hope we don't have to get there but, I think uh, he said this on a Swedish talk show. Yeah. A morning yeah, yeah, yeah. talk show. Mm. In the radio, right? very funny. Yeah. <laughs> I think, no, there's a morning uh, sit-down TV talk show. Oh, I it was on the TV. Mm. Or maybe I'm mixing them up. But either way, it was it was <laughs> very blunt. <laughs> but it is, it's it kind, is of kind of true. It, yeah. it kind of reflects the societal, uh, yeah. from a societal level where, where things are moving. Mm-hmm. So, mm. yeah. So was... that's uh, it for this episode. Yes. We officially turned one year old with this episode because well, our yeah. first... First episode was uh, aired on 12th of November last mm-hmm. year. So happy birthday to us. <laughs> and uh, we hope to have another upcoming very interesting year, learning a lot about AMR with the people that come to the studio and yeah. with together the, with you. the conversations and together with you, of course. Uh, please remember that you can always reach to us. And if you want to leave any comments, if you want to uh, leave a review, that could help people find us easier, please do so. We are always welcome for reviews and criticism as well. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. For more information about the Ypsala Antibiotic Center, please visit our website. You can find a link in the episode notes. You can also follow us in Twitter. Our handle is UAC underscore UU. This episode was brought to you by the AMR Studios, composed by Eva Garmendia, 
Jenny Jackman and Po Chen Tang. And a big thank you to Henrik Nys for letting us use his song Sound the Alarm. You can find a link to his Spotify in the episode notes.